Welcome to the fourth in the series of uh, seminar talks on complexity systemic risk. Pleased to see that uh, despite the rain, we've got a, a good turnout and there's water, as you can see, both inside and outside, as is appropriate for today's talk. Uh, we spent the last two sessions looking at uh, complex social systems, and so uh, today we, we, we move back to looking at a very large scale natural complex system. I'm very pleased to welcome David Marshall, uh, who of course is locally part of the 21st Century School, where he uh, co-directs the, the, uh, uh, one of the centers here. And uh, by training, he is a physicist and fluid dynamicist, I suppose. And, and yes, I was trying to, as I discovered looking at the website, a physical oceanographer, which was, I, I just this morning added to my vocabulary. And um, Without further ado, it's the usual format. Um, I'll hand over to David to talk on ocean circulation and climate observing and modeling the global ocean, of which we have a problem here, I gather, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Um, so thank you for inviting me. Indeed, thank you to everyone for coming out um, this afternoon, because it was truly dreadful when I was cycling down. Um, so you've already heard I co-direct the 21st Century Ocean Institute with Gideon Henderson sitting in the front row. <laughs> Um, the focus of the Institute is, is primarily on the next century, and in particular, the interaction between ocean chemistry um, and ocean circulation. Um, today, I'm going to talk mainly about ocean circulation, so not just about work that we're doing as part of the 21st Century School, but about some, some wider issues too. Um, I was guessing that we, well, I, I think we do have a wide range of backgrounds here, so um, I've pitched the talk at a, a fairly general level. Um, so I'm going to start by telling you something about the ocean. So I guess show you the first few pictures from a, an oceanography um, ocean circulation textbook, the cartoons of the ocean circulation. Um, but then we'll look in a little more detail at the range of scales that, um, that um, you have for ocean circulation that are important. Um, not just on the smaller scales, but also impact back on the larger scales. I'll then talk for a few slides about um, some of the challenges of observing the global ocean, um, likewise for modelling the global ocean, and um, in this part of the talk, that will mainly be numerical <coughs> modelling, but we'll talk about similar models <coughs> later on as well. And then I'm going to focus on two problems. Um, the first, very briefly, is a new problem we've just embarked on, we've just obtained some note funding for, which is understanding the role of ocean eddies in glacial cycles. So, so I guess on the 100,000 year timescale, so a, a wide range of, a really wide range of timescales. Um, and then the second topic, well, when I was thinking about what to talk about here, there's one question I'm guaranteed to be asked whenever I go to lunch in college, which is, will the Gulf Stream shut down? And I, I guess I've been asked the question so many times, I thought it would be a good opportunity to um, to try and answer some of those, um, to answer that question in a little more detail. You can probably guess the answer, um, but if not, um, you can wait and see. Okay, so if you take an ocean circulation course, you usually start by being shown some cartoons of the ocean circulation. Um, this is one of the better ones in that the currents are, are roughly in the right place. Um, if you average over a very long period, it's not true of most textbooks. Um, so, obviously the main difference between the ocean and the atmosphere is the presence of continents. Um, so atmospheric flow is primarily sonal. In the ocean you have continental barriers in the way. Um, so I should say this is the surface circulation here. So in most of the basins, in all of the basins actually, you see these closed gyre circulations known as subtropical gyres. Um, not really going to talk about those today, but they're wind driven primarily. Um, and what's interesting, and perhaps is relevant for today, is that the circulation is, um, is enhanced on the western side. So we tend to have broad equatorward flows over the interior of the basins and very fast, um, narrow western boundary currents, which can be as, as, as little as 50 kilometers wide or so. And actually, it's one of the great success stories in fluid mechanics, the explanation for the western intensification of the ocean circulation. The one exception is in the Southern Ocean, where, you, um, where it's possible to have circumpolar flow um, because of the, the narrow Drake Passage. And there, indeed, we find the largest mean current on the ocean surface. So this carries 130 million cubic meters of water per second, roughly speaking, around 
Antarctica, and that's known as the Antarctic Circumpolar Current. Now you can think of this as the surface circulation or some proxy for the depth integrated circulation. Superimposed on this, these surface cells um, is an overturning circulation. And normally in the textbooks you'll see a cartoon of the so-called global thermohaline conveyor belt, um, which actually is pretty ropey to be honest when you get outside of the Atlantic. But again, this is one of the better cartoons in the Atlantic. Um, and the basic idea is you have warm water moving northwards, intertwined with the wind-driven subtropical gyres, um, flowing to high latitudes where it's made dense um, through cooling, um, and then returning southwards at depth. And this is known as the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, um, or the Thermohaline Circulation. We prefer this term these days. I'll mention why later on. Now, if you look at the ocean at any snapshot, um, any instant, because it looks very different. So this is sea surface temperature now. Can we turn the front lights off? Is that an easy thing to do? Um, so um, this now is a numerical model, so it's not reality. Um, it actually looks so realistic in some respects that actually it's been confused for reality in several places on the internet. Um, so snapshots from this model, particular model, have been um, described as, as observational data on the internet in places. Um, but it is model world, it's, um, it's a sol solving the fluid equations. And this is sea surface temperature. You can get some idea of time scale from the seasonal cycle of the surface temperature contours. And here you can see the narrow Gulf Stream um, moving northwards along the North American coastline, separating. And you, hopefully you can just about see breaking up into eddies. And these eddies are the analogue of weather systems in the atmosphere, but they occur on a very much smaller spatial scale, about 50 kilometres or so. And this really makes ocean modelling much more challenging than the atmospheric modeling, because you need to capture the global scale um, and these very narrow scales of the boundary currents and the eddies. Now, in addition, there's a whole myriad of smaller scale processes, that, um, many of which are actually very important for the large scale, superimposed on this large scale circulation. So one exa example is breaking internal waves. Um, and this is a beautiful picture showing acoustic backscatter, which is picking up some um, what's known as a Kelvin-Helmholtz instability, so basically wave breaking. These are internal gravity waves on density interfaces in the fluid. Um, and you can see the scale here is about 100 metres, so these are about 50 metres in diameter. <coughs> and this is one of the dominant mechanisms for mixing fluid vertically in the ocean. So a, a really important process. I used to um, take part in a summer school at Cambridge, and we actually did an experiment. And what you're looking at here is, is dense red water moving downslope and light water moving upslope. And there's a shear between the two layers, and you'll see an instability develop now. And you'll see, this, um, you'll see these, um, these eddies form, and very clearly a lot of wave breaking and mixing. So this is one of the dominant mechanisms for, for mixing fluid vertically and a big challenge to relate that to the larger scale flow and then feed the effects back to the large scale flow. Another example is, um, is convection. So if you cool at the sea surface, um, then you have dense water which sinks in narrow plumes. Now in the atmosphere, you would, um, essentially the upside down version of this, you would just have air rising and spreading out at a height, but in the ocean, the rotation really constrains the convection into very narrow plumes with, with, um, with upwelling in between. So effectively you get mixing. And these plumes could be about a kilometre across or so. And again, here's an example in the laboratory of some sinking plumes. So I'm sure you've all been wondering what this tank of water is doing here. And I've, I couldn't resist the temptation to actually show you a real process. Whether this will work or not, it's always dangerous to, to try something like this in a, in a lecture. So, I don't know how many of you are fluid analysis. Um, if you are and you know the answer, then please don't spoil it. So, what I've got here is some, boiling, some boiled water, which I'm dyeing red. And I'm going to take a syringe and I'm going to put it on the surface of the cold water. And the question is, what's going to happen? If we put some hot water, dyed red, onto the surface of this tank. This is the hard bit. So, I'll try and put it in as gently as I can. 
So what do you expect to happen in this case? It's light and it's going to float. Okay. So is that right? Yeah. So you can see it's buoyant, it's coming back to the surface. Those at the front, still right? So can you see this at the back? Yeah. Yep. That's a miracle, actually. I was <laughs> <laughs> so actually what's happening is what's happening in this picture over here. This is an example. Um, Right, so this is what happens um, when water comes out of the Mediterranean into the Atlantic. All the salty water comes out of the Mediterranean. It's salty because you have lots of evaporation in the Mediterranean. Um, and this is a process that can mix Mediterranean water down two kilometers in the, in the Atlantic. Really important process. You can see for yourselves about a millimeter spatial scale or so. So a, a tiny process. I'd be exaggerating if I said it's the most important process. It's, a, it's, it's more of a detail, but it's a nice example you can demonstrate here of some of the nonlinearity. And I guess you could call this emergent nonlinear structures. Um, so. Um, so, what's happening? Um, well, you've got warm water, so it's stable stratification, but on the smaller scales, the heat anomalies diffuse away very rapidly, about 100 times faster than salt anomalies. So salt in this context is dissolved solids. So what's causing this convection is the food colouring, the dissolved solids in the food colouring. And on the smaller scales, you diffuse away the temperature contrast, and you're left with salty water, which is relatively dense, in these little fingers next to um, fresh water, and therefore it sinks. So even though the stratification is stable, you can mix down in the ocean. Um, it's believed in some places a couple of kilometres or so. And you can see it's gone right down to the bottom. So it's a gimmick, but I thought it'd be a nice thing to, to show. Seeing is believing. Um, in the opposite case, where you have um, fresh cold water over warm salty water, I'm not going to try to explain this, but you get a similar, a sort of related process, um, a sort of diffusive, double diffusive process, um, which eventually leads to the, well, very quickly actually leads to this, um, this layering. Um, in the vertical. Um, so the scale here, this is a zoom up and the scale is, um, gosh I can't read it myself, about 50 meters or so. And you can see there must be about 10 or 15 layers here. So again, this same process here is taking a smooth stratification and where the conditions are right, creating this step-like microstructure in the vertical. Um, so again, an example of the small-scale process that's important. So, um, I made a big mistake last night. I, at the last minute, decided to look up on Wikipedia what the definition of complexity was. And I discovered that over 30, no one agrees. Um, um, my interpretation is that the oceans are a complex system in the scientific sense, according to most, but not all, definitions I read last night, for a number of reasons. And I took some of these definitions, actually, off an, mainly off an EPSERC webpage. Um, defining a um, complexity in the context of a program they run. So there's interactions between many processes at many different scales, emergent properties, um, vortices, for example, medis, you've just seen some an example there. A very much a non-equilibrium system. It can self-organize into states that shows, show quasi-stability. We'll see the overturning circulation as an example of that at the end of the talk. And, um, well, I didn't like this term, but they described it as feedback to external manipulation. I think this means if you force the ocean from above, say, the atmosphere, um, it feeds back in interesting ways. And indeed, if you couple the atmosphere to the ocean, for example, um, you can produce new phenomena that do not exist in either, media, in, in either one of the mediums alone. Um, and the, the, the prime example of that would be El Nino, which is an oscillation in the climate system, um, which relies on both the ocean and the atmosphere. So I would argue the oceans are a complex system in the scientific sense, and they certainly also are in the, the more common sense, the, the, actually the misuse sense of the word. So I think most people interpret this to mean complicated, although scientifically it's actually very different. Um, it almost means the opposite. Okay, so let's get rid of our demonstration. Now that it's gone all the way down. I know the James Morgan people will be nervous about this. But. Um, 
So the next question I want to ask is, how do you go about observing the ocean? So the oceans are huge, um, they're remote, um, they're corrosive, they're um, opaque to electromagnetic radiation. If you think about it, almost every method you use to observe in the atmosphere um, relies either directly or indirectly on your ability to, to send electromagnetic radiation through the atmosphere. So you can't see beneath the sea surface with light. Well, historically, um, really out of necessity, what you had to do was assume that the oceans were steady. Um, in fact, up until the early 70s, some people even actually did believe that the oceans were fairly steady, um, which, you know, looking back, is actually quite surprising, to be honest. But um, typically what you would do, is, to, um, and indeed is still done, is you take a boat um, across the ocean and, and record a hydrographic section. Um, so Gideon is, is leading one of these later in the year as part of the Geotraces program. And um, you stop um, every so often, rather more often than I've sketched here, um, drop a line and, and you measure temperature, salinity, um, and as a function of depth and indeed other um, trace substances as well that you're interested in. And then you can produce a map of, say, salinity along your, your section. And over time you build up a number of these um, and the other thing you need to know is that once you have the temperature and salinity, you can construct the density field. And once you have the density field, you can work out to a very good approximation how the velocity changes with height. That comes, comes out of the dynamics. So you, you don't get the absolute flow, but you get the change of flow with height, and that's extremely useful. Now, I thought it'd be interesting to show you this panel, which I used to show my students. Um, so this was the... This is the total inventory of hydrographic data as things stood in 1990 in the Southern Ocean. And these are the three summer months and the three winter months at the surface. It's much worse at depth. Um, and especially in winter, there's huge big holes here. There's essentially no data whatsoever. And here's a time series of the number of stations south of 30 south. And again, you can see the peak here is 2,000 per year. Um, so a very, very much an undersampled system. Um, in both space and time. Now things did improve um, dramatically in the 1990s. Um, so there was an experiment called the World Ocean Circulation Experiment and one of its objectives was to um, estimate the state of the oceans over a 10 year time window. And so these were the one-time surveys that were taken. There were also some repeat surveys, not so many of those. Um, and you can see that you achieved a global coverage albeit with big gaps, of course, between the sections. Now, one of the exciting developments over the last 10, 15 years has been that we now have, for the first time, a truly global observing system, at least at the, um, in the upper um, kilometre or two. And the main elements of this are, first of all, at the sea surface, a satellite altimeter. This measures the height of the sea surface to an accuracy of a few centimetres, and if you think that if you move the, the surface up and down, it changes the, the weight of the fluid column, it changes the pressure in the ocean, and you can use that to back out the, um, the fluid velocity. And this is at a 150 kilometer resolution every 10 days. Um, so this is the latest, JSON 2 as it's known, um, and this is the most recent uh, map you can, measure, you can download from the 30th of January. And, for example, you can see sea level elevated in the eastern Pacific and depressed in the western Pacific, which is the classic signature of an El Nino. Now, in addition to JSON, the altimeter, we also have Argo floats. So these were named, um, the idea was you had JSON and he sent out his Argonauts to, to seek out the Golden Fleece. Um, and currently there's 3,198 floats as of yesterday. Um, you can download this in real time. Couldn't get today's in time, but um, but um, this is yesterday's coverage. Um, so about 800 floats deployed every year to replenish those that are lost or, or grounded. Um, and what these floats do is they descend down to a reference depth, typically two kilometres. They drift around for nine days, so you get a measure of the of the current speed at nine at, at two kilometres depth. And then when they come up, they measure temperature and salinity. And that, again, gives you the variation of the velocity with height. So you get the complete flow field, um, and you can see the spatial coverage um, every 10 days. So this really is transforming the way we, we can observe the ocean. 
In addition, you have time series um, at fixed points, which are very, very useful. Um, and there's always someone coming along with a new innovative idea. This is my favorite in the recent years, um, elephant seals in the Southern Ocean. Um, so actually, this started as a marine mammal program to track the, the movement of elephant seals. Um, but quickly they realized you could measure temperature and salinity at the same time. Um, and rather nicely, these measurements pick up very much where Argo um, starts to, to drop off in the Southern Ocean. So here's the inventory in sort of mauve of all the Argo floats, and here are all the measurements taken from the elephant seals. And these things can dive down a couple of hundred meters even under the sea ice. So when you can compare with what we had back in 1990, this is, this is truly remarkable, actually. Um, and then, in addition, always you're interested in process experiments to try and understand some of the smaller scale processes like we were just looking at at the beginning. So moving on to modeling. So I guess one respect in which the ocean is, is different to most other complex systems you'll hear about is we do actually know in principle, um, some people question this, but in principle we do know our equations of motion. So don't worry about them, but here they are. Um, they're not easy to solve, I can assure you. Um, however, these apply to each individual fluid parcel, and, and roughly speaking, if we assume that each millimetre cubed of water moves independently, and I, I'd speculate based on what we've seen, that's probably about the smaller scale um, that we care about. Um, and there's five variables to solve for here. Um, then you get 6 times 10 to the 27 degrees of freedom. So that's a huge, huge number. Um, what is it? 6 million, 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 million thousand degrees of freedom. Um, so of course it's impractical to solve for each fluid parcel. You couldn't find a computer large enough to do it. Nor would you ever want to do it. Um, you, 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 know, you haven't got the data for one to... Um, and you wouldn't want to interpret anything like that number of degrees of freedom. So instead what we do is we solve an approximation to these equations on a finite grid, where roughly speaking you have a grid point every 100 kilometers or every one degree, say, in a climate model. And the very highest um, global ocean models these days are run at about a 12 degree resolution or so. There's a few that have gone higher than this. But these would be run over very short time windows of a few years. These could be run out um, for, for um, much, much longer, thousands of years or so. But these flows are very fiscous, so basically you get a very, um, you don't get a dynamic solution. So this is a snapshot, um, but, but the flow is not turbulent at all. And this is the Gulf Stream here, and you can see it's, it's very diffuse, much wider than 50 kilometers. In fact, the grid spacing is wider than the, the width of the real Gulf Stream. Whereas in the, you've already seen this solution, um, at 12 degree, the, the system is, is a lot more dynamic. But even in this higher resolution model, many, many processes occur on smaller scales and still need to be parameterized. In other words, we need to reintroduce separate models to parameterize the double diffusion, the internal waves, and so forth. And in that sense, I think we really do now have a complex system because we've got, we've got different models interacting between different scales. And the smaller scales can affect the larger scales and vice versa. And I'll show you an example of that um, shortly. So an interesting question to ask is, um, if you work out um, what the equivalent resolution for atmospheric weather systems would be as a one degree ocean climate model resolves ocean eddy. So in other words, you work out how many grid points you have across an ocean eddy, say one or a half, and you ask what's the equivalent resolution for the atmosphere um, scaling up to weather systems. And this is the answer. And I don't think you would trust the weather forecast made using that mesh. Um, so this is what we're dealing with with the ocean. It, it's, a, it's a very much more challenging, in some ways more exciting for me as a field to work in um, because you have to be more creative in, in your approach. So part of the answer is increased resolution. So for example, this is a recent um, a high resolution coupled ocean atmosphere system that's starting to resolve the ocean eddies. Um, and some people really do believe that running these models at very high resolutions is the way forward. Tim Palmer's just joined Oxford and um, argues this point quite, quite vividly. 
And I promised Tim I would plug a talk by Bob Bishop on the 18th of March, where he's going to make a case for a, a sort of climate-like CERN to, to run um, very high-resolution climate models. But my view is that brute force is useful, but it's, um, it's certainly not, not, not sufficient. You, you need to do an awful lot more to understand the solutions that you obtain. So I want to spend the, the rest of the talk um, talking about two problems. So the first one is going to be relatively brief, um, but I, I thought I, I would pick this up just because it highlights the range of temporal scales where, that we're really, we're really pushing the, the boundaries, I guess, on this problem. So this is understanding the role of sudden ocean eddies in glacial cycles. So David Munday is my postdoc, has done most of this work. <laughs> Leslie Allison, a PhD student who's just graduated, and Helen Johnson, um, in earth sciences. And the question we want to ask moving forwards is why is glacial CO2 so much lower than interglacial CO2? So here's a graph showing you CO2 parts per million by volume um, going backwards in time from the present day as inferred from, a, from an ice called Fostock. Now what you can see is that CO2 is relatively high um, during the interglacial periods and low during the glacial, um, got the, yes, low during the glacial periods, and the variation is to, is about of order a hundred or so parts per million by volume. Now there have been lots of people who have tried to to uh, to ask the question: What is the process that causes this? Now, if you look at the the forcing of the climate system, we believe that the glacial cycles are forced by by subtle orbital variations um, in the Earth that, that give you subtle variations in the incoming radiative forcing. But that really is not enough to explain the amplitude of the glacial cycles that we see. So there has to be a big positive feedback in the system. And, and I think a lot of people believe the most likely candidate here, is, candidate here is the ocean. And the reason for that is simply that the oceans hold about um, 50 times more carbon than the atmosphere. And so you don't need to change the ocean carbon cycle by very much in order to release a lot of carbon into the atmosphere and change atmospheric CO2. And you all know that CO2 is a greenhouse gas, um, and, and then you've got your positive feedback, your amplification mechanism. So of course climate skeptics like to use this argument to argue that what we're seeing in the present day, um, in fact, is just natural variability. But in fact, they're, they're drawing completely the wrong conclusion from from this story, because actually they should be rather alarmed by this story. It says the natural response of the system, if you force it, if you warm it, is actually to release more CO2 from the oceans into the atmosphere, so to give you a positive feedback. So if anything, it, it's, um, it's going to amplify um, the warming in the present day. So this is an attempt to, to, to quantify the most likely candidates. I wouldn't take it too seriously, but these are ocean processes and there's some of the larger bars and the uncertainties are estimated here, and the confidence is very low. Um, so in particular, um, if you look at the variation of dissolved inorganic carbon in the ocean as a function of depth, it's relatively depleted at the surface compared to at depth. So it's about 15% lower at the surface than at depth. And so this is, a, this is a grossly oversimplified argument, but our thinking is if you can move this profile up or down subtly, um, um, in fact by a, a few hundred meters, then you can certainly explain all of the, um, the signal that you see in the atmosphere. So it's a lot more complicated than that, but, but um, perhaps that's a good starting point. Now, related to this story is, is the Antarctic circumpolar current. So the largest current on the Earth's surface, um, in the ocean, sorry. Um, so circumnavigating the globe. So here's a cartoon again of the streamlines for the Antarctic circumpolar current. And here's a snapshot from a numerical model. And again, in the model you can see that the ACC is populated by, by, by these eddies um, everywhere that you look. And then finally, I want to show you a section across the Antarctic circumpolar current. So starting in Antarctica and moving northwards, and we're looking at a quantity called neutral density here, but think of it as density. Don't read the numbers, or if you do add a thousand, you get to the numbers. 
oceanographers being lazy, they like to leave the thousand off. Um, and, and what you can see is that the density surfaces are relatively flat to the north of the Southern Ocean, but they steep strongly in the Southern Ocean. And again, basically, this is this relation between density gradients and the variation of the flow with height. So in order to get this circumpolar current, we have to have the density surfaces sloping. Or put it another way, if you have a circumpolar current, and if you assume that most of the density surfaces are outcropped at the sea surface, um, adjacent to Antarctica, and that's nearly true, this contour interval is not uniform, then you, you, you have a relation between the strength of the circumpolar current and the stratification on the, the basins to the north of the Southern Ocean. So we've, um, in Leslie Allison's PhD, she played with two models. So I guess a, a, a lesson from this work is if you have a simple enough model, you can find an even simpler model to explain it. So she had a simplified two-dimensional model that just had one moving layer and a density interface. And I don't want to go into details, but in two dimensions, it solves the fluid equations. She blows a wind over the Southern Ocean and she gets a circumpolar current. And then she had an even simpler model that's um, where you have a single interface, again, representing the stratification. So a dense, a dense layer and a light layer. And very simply, you just do a mass budget for the surface layer. So you work out which are the processes that increase the volume of the upper layer and which are the processes that decrease it. And the processes that increase it are primarily Southern Ocean winds. So they tend to blow to the east and the Earth's rotation deflects the flow to the, um, to the left in the southern hemisphere. So you get a northward flow into this layer. Um, T-mix is, is mixing from the breaking waves. That's also a source of warm water. And the main sink is the Southern Ocean eddy. So basically when this interface gets too steep, it becomes unstable and the eddies flatten it back again. So you take water out. And without going into any of the mathematical details, if you put in some standard parameterizations for these terms, then you can compare what you get from solving the full equations with this simple single equation, and you get uh, for the spin-up of the circumpolar current, and you get an absolutely beautiful collapse of the analytical solution onto the numerical solution. And this was for four different forcing patterns. Now, the, the solution, the strength of the, of the current, and in fact the spin-up timescale, depends on the strength of the winds, but critically, it also depends in every instance on the eddies. So basically, everything that we care about in this solution, and we think we understand it because we have a simple theory to explain the solution, everything we care about depends on how we represent Southern Ocean eddies in this model. Um, Take my word for it, there's one parameter in global ocean models I do not believe, it's the eddy diffusivity. It's probably the dodgiest parameter there is in an ocean model. So this alarmed us. So we got thinking and how, well, if we want to think about glacial cycles, we need to resolve eddies. We need to run to thermodynamic equilibrium, so we don't really need to run 100,000 years. 5,000 is enough, but that's a lot longer than you run most eddy permitting models. So we decided the only way we could do this was to reduce our domain size. And if you look at the equations, it turns out the way to do this is to shrink it longitudinally. So we've gone down to, we call it a box model, so it's a toy model now, not, certainly not a model of the real ocean. But it's a box model that's 20 degrees wide, um, and it has a re-entrant channel in the Southern Ocean. And then we run it at a crazy resolution. So this is one that Dave did last week. It's not the same solution as on this side, actually, but it's... Um, this is at 6 degree, and we can run this to thermodynamic equilibrium repeatedly, we believe, um, over several thousand years. <coughs> and you can see that it's producing a nice turbulent um, eddy field. So we haven't had time to look at the biogeochemistry yet, but I just wanted to show you this, this result from some of his early experiments. So the red and blue lines are basically with parameterized eddies, with the dodgy parameter. And the, the magenta line is at quarter degree resolution, where we're starting to resolve the eddy fields. I wouldn't say they're resolved, but they're, they're present, and we're starting to converge on a, some sort of turbulent solution. 
And what we're doing here is ramping up the wind forcing on, the, on this axis. And this is the strength of the ACC. And you're starting to see here something that we actually believe in on physical grounds and actually is a feature of many um, complex systems too, which is that if you push too hard, the system basically goes hyper-unstable. And the harder you push, the more unstable it goes and quickly returns you back to, to where you started. So in other words, you can ramp the wind up hugely, but you don't, once you reach a threshold, exceed the ACC. You, do, you can't strengthen the ACC very much further. It is going up a bit, but of course the slope is much flatter than with the premature diggers. So this has all sorts of implications for the carbon cycle. Um, we haven't worked them all out yet for, for sure, but um, um, probably wind forcing, wind strength is, is probably not the thing to look at seeing this curve, but it opens up all sorts of other possibilities. So that's very much work in progress, but I like it because it's an example of where the large-scale global solution, the strength of the largest current in the ocean is being set by the eddies, but the strength of the eddies is set by the large-scale flow. So a complex system where you've got interactions of, between the smaller scales and the larger scales in two directions. Okay, how much time do I have? About 10 minutes, 15 minutes? So I wanted to end then, um, so this is less on the work that we're actually doing, but um, I thought I had to answer this question of is the Gulf Stream going to collapse? As for those of you who came in late, I'm asked this every time I go to lunch in college and most other places. Um, and I guess everyone reads the papers and believes um, what they read or at least um, wonder if there's some truth in, in what they read. So here's this cartoon again of the overturning circulation. So we call this the meridional overturning circulation, or the Atlantic, MOC, AMOC. Um, traditionally, it was called the Fermi-Haline circulation, the definition of which was the circulation that's driven by changing the temperature or salinity in some part of the ocean. Um, that's going out of fashion, because it turns out this circulation is actually mechanically driven. Um, and actually the energy source is the thing we were just looking at, it's the Southern Ocean winds again. Because that's what gives you the stratification, um, which is actually the energy source then for this circulation. You change the temperature of salinity, but it's actually not a source of energy. So it's a subtlety, but, but we don't really like this term from the Haymine circulation these days. So in some ways this is really a bit like a central heating system, it's mechanically driven mainly by Southern Ocean processes, I suspect. This warm water then gets pumped northwards, um, is cooled and returns um, southward at depth. So you've got warm water going northwards, cold water going southwards, and that means that heat is being taken from the South Atlantic into the North Atlantic. And you can see this if you look at the heat transport. So green is in the Pacific, um, this purple is in the Atlantic, and you've got peak values of about one petawatt. So a petawatt is 10 to the 15 watts. So that's, um, what is that? That's 10 million million light bulbs, I think, isn't it? So something like that. The old style light bulbs, not 100 watt ones. Um, and interestingly, it's, the heat transport is northwards in both hemispheres. So even in the South Atlantic, you're taking heat from the cold high latitudes to the warm tropics. And of course, when you see this cartoon, that makes sense. So what happens to that heat? Well, so let's follow the <coughs> follow its transport northwards. So this is the sea surface temperature from 3rd of February 2003 over the western North Atlantic. So you can see the Florida current, which becomes the separated Gulf Stream. Here again, about 50 kilometers wide or so. And then on the bottom, I'm going to show you um, the annual mean air-sea heat flux. Um, so negative values over here. So that means that heat is being lost from the ocean to the atmosphere. So the, the story you normally read is that the reason we have a mild climate is the warm waters of the Gulf Stream are lapping the shores of the UK, keep giving us our temperate climate. There's some truth to that, but, but actually a more accurate description would be that most of the heat is lost actually on the western side of the Atlantic. And then that warms the air coming off the continent, but then subsequently flows over um, northwestern Europe. So again, just remember the numbers here. Think about the numbers. 200 watts per meter squared annual mean. So, so two light bulbs every, every square meter. It's a lot of energy. Um, 
What's the effect on, the, on our climate? Well, the easiest way to answer that question is to artificially remove the overturning circulation. And you can do that in model world, at least, by um, what's known as freshwater hosing. So you basically dump an insane amount of fresh water in the Atlantic. That makes the water light, stops it sinking. And within 20 years, you've cut off the overturning, at least temporarily. And this is the response in the sea surface temperatures. I'm sorry, the air sur surface air temperatures. And you can see a big bullseye over the Atlantic in part due to sea ice changes, but, but over the UK you've got a cooling of about 3-4 degrees or so um, if you remove the circulation. So yes, it does lead to a milder um, climate, but, it's, um, but, um, but we're not really talking about a return of an ice age if we lose this circulation. Now the other reason people are, are very interested in this circulation is the, is the idea that it might possess more than one stable mode of operation, or, or in other words, undergo abrupt change. And actually this goes back to a very famous paper by Henry Stommel in 1961. It's a remarkable paper for many reasons. Um, Stommel was the genius in physical oceanography. But this paper, um, no one was thinking about the thermohaline circulation at the time, and it was cited three times in 25 years, um, which I think all of us would, be, would regard as a failure. One was a self-citation, and one was an irrelevant citation. <laughs> so one genuine citation, and it reflects the fact no one was thinking about the thermohaline circulation. Then it was rediscovered, and it's been cited many hundreds of times since, um, but just ahead of its time. And the idea is basically that you cool at high latitudes, warm in the tropics, so this is a two-box model, um, polar ocean, low-latitude ocean. So the thermal forcing drives the circulation in this direction, but the freshwater forcing is, is evaporating in the tropics, making the water dense because it leaves the salt behind, and precipitating at high latitudes, so making the water less dense. So the freshwater forcing is driving the circulation the other way. And then the other thing you need to know is that the thermal forcing acts on a shorter time scale than the freshwater forcing. So you end up with two possible solutions for any given, well, for some freshwater forcings in this model. So you can either have a strong circulation that's in this sense, or you can have a weak circulation that's in the other sense. And then the argument goes that in a warmer climate, a warmer atmosphere holds more moisture, so the freshwater transport goes up. And so you move down this curve until you hit this critical bifurcation point, at which point the, the high-latitude sinking solution is no longer sustainable, so the circulation collapses. So it's a nice story based on a, a very simple model. Now people get excited because you do see similar behavior in very simple um, ocean circulation models, solving the fluid equations in simple boxes. You also see somewhat similar behavior in global atmosphere ocean models from the early 90s. This is a famous paper by Manabi and Stupa from Princeton, where they doubled CO2 from pre-industrial values and quadrupled it. And you can see in the quadruple case that the circulation collapsed. I should have said a spur drop is a million cubic meters per second. Actually, a, a footnote to this story is they subsequently ran the model on, and it does recover after a few more hundred years. So whether we care is another um, And there is also a lot of evidence in the paleo records that's suggestive of the fact that the overturning might have changed in the, in the past. This is one of the earliest examples. Yeah, but I, I won't go into details. But importantly, no state-of-the-art coupled ocean atmosphere model has yet shown multiple equilibrium states. And that's a very important caveat. So what is going to happen over the next century? Well, if you read the papers, this is what's going to happen. Um, this is one of my favourites. Some it's an old one now from the Guardian. Meltdown, and we're going to uh, we're going to Spitzbergen, Britain. So the acquire the climate of Spitzbergen. Um, the Gulf Stream is going to shut down. Um, so with global warming, but without the Gulf Stream, um, we're going to have temperatures falling to minus 13 or lower. Actually, given the temperatures this winter, if you're not four degrees off, maybe that's not too crazy. But, but they, then they really get carried over. We're going to have polar bears, but no crops and no weeding to do. So, um, <laughs> now, one of our esteemed colleagues in the US um, frequently gets incensed by these articles, Carl Wunsch, 
And I mentioned Carl because he's going to be coming here in a year and a half time to the George Eastman visiting chair. Um, and Carl wrote this wonderfully provocative letter to nature saying the Gulf Stream's safe if the wind blows as Earth turns, which partly was making the point that, that a large fraction of the Gulf Stream is wind-driven, so as long as the wind's blowing and the Earth's turning to put it on the west, there will always be a Gulf Stream. Um, but he does make another important point at the bottom here, which is that there are real questions that are important, and the danger is they get trivialised when you start to over-sensationalise these issues. Now, Hollywood didn't read that article. Um, so the mother of all thermohaline shutdowns occurred in 2004. Um, not only did, did Europe cool, in fact it was Oxford, wasn't it, where they, um, the professor was, I think. Um, but anyway, I wasn't here then. Um, but, um, but New York froze over and, it, and this triggered earthquakes, um, tsunamis, and God knows what else. God knows through what mechanism. Um, and I think we could have an interesting discussion about whether this is a good thing or a bad thing for the field. Um, I'm not sure anyone takes the Hollywood movie too seriously, but I think the Guardian article is seriously damaging, and there's a lot of those articles that have been appearing. So the question is, is any publicity good publicity, or, or are we in danger in the long term of damaging the, the field? So what, does the, um, what do the climate models tell us? So this is from the latest um, report of the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, the 2007 report. So these are our state-of-the-art climate models. This is the strength of the circulation in millions of cubic meters per second. Here are some observations, best we had. Um, and starting from 1900 through to 2200. So I think you can conclude a, a lot of things, for a number of things from these graphs. First is that the models aren't very good on this aspect. Um, some of the models, the circulation collapses immediately, for example. You can also deduce that most of the models are showing, a, if anything, a decline in the strength of the circulation, which is consistent with warming and freshening. So the IPCC concluded it's very likely that the, the AMOC will slow during the 21st century. This is IPCC speak for 90% um, chance or greater, but not, they decline to go to 95%. But they think it's very unlikely that the AMOC will undergo a large abrupt transition. That means less than 10%, but greater than 5%, I think, if you interpret it. I would put a huge error bar on that. Um, none of these models resolve any, um, and we're talking about sensitive bifurcations here. It's like walking towards the seashore. You don't know if you've got a blindfold on, you don't know whether there's a cliff there, you don't know how high it is, you don't know where it is, um, but you keep walking and you may hit it, you may not. And even if you fall over it, you might land in the sea and be okay. So, um, you know, I'm... Why are the, why are the, on the slide, why aren't the observations out in the, in the amongst the data? Because presumably they were taken sometimes between 1900 and 2000. The observations were almost certainly taken after that, actually. Why are they out in the, in the plot to um, show? Oh, good question. Is it up to us? Someone on the IPCC. Miles. <laughs> it's because there's, there's snapshots, and yes. they don't necessarily represent a particular point in the model, in model world. And people whose models don't overlap might get a bit uptight. Mm -hmm. Well, there is, a, there is actually also an issue about this. I mean, there, there's a sense in which people do not want to publish models that are outliers, and that is a concern. Um, at least there was an example, I think, in the most recent report that at least made it into the appendix, which was good. But, you know, it's, one of my former <coughs> colleagues in the US described these things as a beauty contest, and you, know, you don't want to be the ugly sister in these things. Um, certainly not if you're a big center. So, I, I'm not trying to downplay the IPCC. I mean, they have a difficult job to do, but it's been, it, that is a, a, a real issue. So what's the, um, let's look at the projections for surface air temperatures, um, going from the most optimistic scenarios through to business as usual. And let's just look at business as usual here, the most extreme one. So this is surface air temperature change by 2090 to 2099. And notice that the warming, typically three to four degrees, is, is rather reduced over the Atlantic. And if I put the, um, the effect of shutting down the AMOC next to this, I think actually there's a surprisingly good, actually, um, correspondence between the fingerprint of the shutdown and what you see here. So I think there's no question that the weakening circulation is a big regional driver 
for regional climate change over the Atlantic sector. So I think it is an important regional signal. What do the observations tell us? Well, there was widespread ev evidence of freshening over the high latitude North Atlantic for the 40 years up until 2002. I should change this text here. You don't need to worry about what these are except to say that they're various measures of salinity or, or whatever that basically show you um, that the system was freshening wherever you looked and however you looked at it. But actually recently some of these signals have, have reversed. So this is consistent with the story that the circulation is weakening, but it's also consistent with the passive response of the ocean to natural variations in the, the atmosphere over the last 40 years. So I think it's actually it, it, it's completely inconclusive. Now things really did get shaken up in December 2005 with this paper published in Nature. Um, the the um, copy editors removed a question mark from the title, which I think was rather <laughs> unfortunate. It changes the emphasis completely of the, of the paper. Um, if anyone has influence on Nature, I think they should allow question marks. Um, Certainly, they should have rewritten this title if they wanted to remove it. But um, anyway, based on five hydrographic sections taken in these years, it was claimed that the circulation had weakened from 23 cubic million meters a second down to about 15 or so over over this um, 40 what is it 50 year period, 47 year period. Um, what this figure doesn't say is that they, the authors themselves estimated a 40% error bar, which perhaps was optimistic. Nevertheless, this was a precursor to, there were already, um, in fact, already deployed a, a, a new observing system with the aim of actually trying to measure the strength of this circulation. The reality is, back in 2005, we didn't know what the strength of the circulation was, and it, we probably wouldn't have known if it was changing. So here's the data from that array. It's based on measuring basically the boundary density and some clever dynamics. You measure four independent quantities that should add up to zero, and, and amazingly, they nearly do. Um, so it's been a huge success, this um, run out of Southampton. And here is a time series from January 2004 to 2006. It now goes further. And here is the overturning circulation. So the natural variations are taking it from about four up to about 32. So in that context, you might want to re rethink what the previous slide was telling us. Five data points from this is meaningless, because um, the natural variability is huge. Actually, the original um, press release actually only published one component of the circulation, and this, was, this is what they published. And in this particular measure, it almost looked like the overturning had reversed direction. Um, in November 2004. That's not shown on the previous panel, as it turned out. Um, interesting to see how the media reacted to this story. So here's two reactions. The first from The Guardian, again, I'm afraid. Sea change, why global warming could leave Britain in the cold? No ice age yet, but Goldstream is weakening and halted for 10 days. Um, <laughs> and then science, I guess, sensing a chance to have a dig at nature for publishing a dodgy paper. False alarm hasn't slowed down after all. So that's in response to the same press release. So um, again, it's fascinating. Now, we're not only interested in abrupt change. Another important aspect here is, is potential predictability. So in model worlds, um, for example, this is Atlantic SST, you can see um, if you run off a series of, of model integrations, um, off a control integration, that these integrations track each other for up to 10 years or so on the sea surface temperature over the Atlantic. And that's a sign that there might be predictability in the system. It doesn't mean we can predict, but at least it means there might be predictability. And that's important for many reasons. Um, the predict predictions might have some skill that's useful to people. But also, um, if you look at the sea surface temperature trend, and indeed also the surface air temperature trend, um, globally in fact, um, so this is in a model ensemble, um, so here's the ensemble mean curve, but then these individual lines are the ensemble members. So one of these could be our real climate, let's say, in this toy world. And there are instances where the Atlantic cools by as much as 0.3 of a degree over a decade. If that happens, we, we better have a good answer as to why it's happened, or, or otherwise we're going to have problems. 
containing our funding. And I think it's important. Well, I don't, that sounds bad, I shouldn't put it that way, but you know what I mean. We need to, I mean, it's been an issue for the last 10 years. There has been some slight warming, actually, but it's, but, um, but um, because 1998 was an exceptionally warm year, Nigel Lawson's jumping up and down and saying global warming's gone away. And of course, you look at this and say, well, there's natural variability in the system, but we really need to do a much better job of trying to attribute those variations and relate them to the natural variations in the system. Um, and in fact, on longer time scales, if you just average the um, surface temperatures over the Atlantic, going back to 1880s, the data gets a bit dodgy the further back you go, to be honest, but, but you can see that it seems to wobble around, and this is known as the Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation. The word oscillation should be banned, it's not an oscillation, it's a fluctuation, but um, it's not obvious as an oscillator. But if you look at the difference in SSTs from um, this period to this period, you can see this big bullseye over the North Atlantic. And it's certainly suggestive of changes in the overturn circulation. I think that's very plausible. Um, I think this is my last but one slide. Um, so, so we're doing work, I just wanted to say we are actually doing work on this topic, um, looking at the sensitivity of the overturning to, to, to surface forcing, um, both the patterns of forcing. So this is the sensitivity to temperature anomalies eight years earlier. And basically it tells you that if you cool on the western side of the North Atlantic eight years earlier, then you will increase the overturning at 25 north eight years later. But conversely, actually, if you warm on the eastern side, you will increase the overturning. So the response to thermal forcing is complicated. And moreover, it seems to oscillate in time. So if you go back 15 years, actually, and you cool the high-latitude North Atlantic, you'll strengthen the overturning 15 years later. That's not surprising. Most systems, if you apply a pulse of forcing, act as a, give you a damped oscillate oscillatory response. And all it's saying is that the system has some memory, and you need to be aware of that. And it's quite hard to attribute changes we see to the, to the history of forcing. It's certainly not as simple as an on-off um, switch. And one of our James Martin fellows, Law Sanner, spent a PhD actually using very similar methods to pick out the anomalies that grow most rapidly. And this gives you a handle on how long you might be able to predict for. So, um, just really wanted to flag that we're doing stuff there. Um, sorry, this is my penultimate slide. I wanted to, to throw in this cautionary note that everything I've said about models with the Gulfstream story here has been based on non-eddying models that do not resolve um, the eddy field. Moreover, they don't resolve many of the critical features. So if we trace the, um, the, the deep limb of the overturning, well, let's start with the warm limb. So the Gulf Stream, the warm water moving northwards, a width of 50 kilometers in a one degree climate model, this is smeared out. Then the water finds its way into the Greenland-Norwegian seas to form convective plumes. Again, this is parametrized. It then goes into an overflow where it spills out into the North Atlantic and you get that mixing. And there's a real nonlinearity here. The harder you push, actually, the less far you get down. It's, it's one of these counterintuitive things. If you, if you go down the slope too fast, then you mix more, and you actually get, down, you get less further down the slope. Um, here's some eddies in the Labrador Sea that nicely fitted with the coastline. I think the scale's about right there, just to point out that eddies matter on the high latitudes too, and this is another region where dense water's formed. So lots of processes are smeared out in these models. Um, I would not want to predict the bifurcation <coughs> structure um, based on a model that had everything smeared out here. I just don't think it's tractable. So it doesn't mean we can't have a stab at quantifying risk, but I think we need to be very honest about how large the uncertainties are. So to conclude, the ocean circulation spans a bewildering array of spatial temporal scales. Smaller scales can affect the larger scales and vice versa. The ocean's grossly undersampled in space and time, but the modern observing system is a huge advance, a huge advance on what we had, and, and it's really opening up all sorts of possibilities we didn't have. Um, I strongly believe that to make progress, we need to use observations, simple models, and global numerical models, but not just resolve the hell out of everything. We need this, the simple models too to interpret and understand what we see. Um, and then finally, but I think importantly, while dramatic storylines such as collapse of the Gulf Stream may 
newspaper editors very happy. I really think we have to be careful not to over-dramatise, because I think it's going to damage the field in the long term. And I have to say, I think complexity theory doesn't help here, bringing in terms such as um, tipping points, thresholds. You know, in this context, and Dave and I have talked about this a few times, um, most of these so-called tipping points are really overhyped. And, you know, well, we're going to go past these tipping points, and it probably isn't the end of the world. Um, it's my personal view. So I think we need to be rather more careful with the language. Um, unfortunately, the real message is rather more boring, um, less dramatic, but it's nevertheless very important, um, which is that we need to monitor on long timescales um, and be honest about the, the magnitude of the potential changes. So thank you very much.